0: All right, let's look at the notes here. So another way you can talk about three means of grace, or I like to, is you, we can call it a fasted lifestyle, right? Essentially, um, what a fasted lifestyle is, is how we restrain our strength. It's how we voluntarily enter into weakness. Giving, if you give your money away, you're financially weaker. You cannot do as much if you give away your money, right? If you pray, you're giving away your time, So you're becoming weak in your time. You could be using that time to do other things. Start your business, network with people, come up with ideas, but you're saying, you know what, I'm going to enter voluntarily into weakness so I can uh, enter into the power of God because I think it's more powerful than what I can do in my own strength. And so we go into the weakness, so that's prayer. And then fasting is the easiest one for us to understand is weakness, right? Because it makes you physically weak. You actually cannot do as much when you fast um, through time and time, you get weak. And so you're like, man, I thought I was going to do more today, but it's taking every drop of the energy just to read my Bible. Like I just do not want to do it. I want to curl up in a ball on the couch and just sleep because I'm not eating. So giving prayer and fasting, there are these unique ways that Jesus has laid out for us in a certain amount of how we enter in, or I like to say how we receive grace, how we position ourselves to receive grace from him, right? He doesn't love us more because we do this stuff right? We experience his love more because we do this stuff. So it's really about how we encounter him and how we experience the Christian life when we enter into these things. And he won't force us to do it. And we can actually miss out on the fullness of what God has for us if we don't enter into these three things. And yes, fasting is included. It doesn't matter what theology we have, clever, funny things. We tell ourselves that, hey, ignore that one. We can't ignore the words of Jesus, right? We, we can come up with whatever, but it won't do away with what he said. We're stuck with it. And actually, it's actually good for us. And when we enter into, we actually start to learn, wow, I thought that was going to be terrible. I hated the idea of giving away my money, but the more I've done it, actually, I like it better. This is actually better for me. My heart isn't so stingy and greedy and grumpy at people now. I actually have more love for people because I've been doing this and so we find out that wow this seems counterintuitive to everything that the world would teach us but it's actually the way to being blessed if you will right I I say this at the very beginning at the top I'm just we're gonna go with the highlights for the majority of the time here uh the person who does these things giving prayer fasting from a truly righteous heart doesn't do them in order to be seen and if, if you've done the homework, which maybe like 15 of you did so far on this one, you would have picked up on that theme, that it's about what you do before his eyes, not about doing it in order to be seen. And so I'm going to hammer that home today. I look at this under two, Matthew 6.1. Jesus is continuing his teaching on what it looks like to practice righteousness. Right? We know practicing righteousness is dealing with anger, adultery, divorce, all those things, but it's also not just avoiding the six negative things, right? But it's doing the three positive things. That's an expression of our righteousness, right? Uh, look at B here. It says the desire to be seen by others, if allowed to go unchecked, when it is fully grown, leads to hating Jesus and the Father. Now, I'm not saying that just to try to be extreme. I've looked at that line and thought, am I exaggerating here? I I don't like embellishment when it comes to teaching the Bible. I don't like exaggeration when it comes to teaching the Bible. I like to do it when I'm messing with people and joking, but when it comes to like the word of God, I like to be as accurate and precise as I can be. I don't want to like do emotionalism, get everybody hyped up and be exciting. Like I want to be precise with my words. So when I say that, I actually truly believe that that's what's going on. It actually is hating Jesus right, if we let this go unchecked. John 15, 25 speaks of a group of people who saw the works that Jesus did, but still hated him without cause. It is likely that this group included many Pharisees who loved to be seen, and when they lost the spotlight because of Jesus, they hated him because they didn't actually love God. They loved the praises of men. Likewise, if we allow our reward to be from the praises of men, we're walking down a path that ends in hating God. My point is that this is serious. is It's really serious. Like it can seem not that big a deal, loving the praises of men, getting filled by what people say about us, and getting down when people say bad stuff about us. But this is actually when you the full grown demon child of this is hating God, because you long for what's His. You want the glory that's due to God. That's where it's burst in, and you're not finding your significance in the eyes of God. So I want to. Ex- um, stress that to you so you take it serious in it's, it's baby root forms. I still struggle with this all the time. Like, this isn't uncommon to me. Like, once again, I wrote these notes for myself first, right? Like, this was my own personal thing. And it's like, man, I find myself loving it when people say good stuff about me, right? Whether at the end of this class you guys have to write reviews, right? And I can sit there and read to myself everything great that gets said and feel, man, I am amazing, I am so great at this. And then I'd be like, you know, I want to teach more, so I get more praise, you know, or whatever it is. And I can do that, and I can get my attention off of what really matters. And what for me would matter, did I say what Jesus wanted me to say in this class? Whether I get stellar reviews or I get critical reviews, right? And we do the same thing in our RGs. We do this in life, right, in so many areas, right? And so it's critical that when we start to get that leaning, we find ourselves, oh, my gosh, I actually was – starting to long and position myself and say certain things just so people would praise me in these circles and say good things that oh my goodness i'm going down a path that actually ends in hating god because i want what's his and what's due to him so i think it helps us to see that voluntary weakness here on d i kind of already said this so let's go let's move on page two Along these, this idea of actually hating Jesus, right, and the Pharisees. Because sometimes I imagine the Pharisees, and Jesus calls them like a brood of vipers at one point. I'm like, man, like, it sounds more intense than I feel like the Pharisees are really deserving of, right? That's how I hear it. And I think that's because I don't see how wicked what was really going on in a lot of their hearts. Not all, not all Pharisees were evil, Right. Uh, some actually loved Jesus and followed Jesus, but there was a whole bunch who really wanted to praise the man. They wanted their positions of authority and leadership, and Jesus threatened that. And so they actually hated Jesus. And I was just, because it was Easter last week, so I was thinking and meditating on everything that occurred. And I was just playing through my mind that these are the guys, their hate was so real that they ripped out the beard in Jesus' face. Like, I can't imagine doing that to somebody, like actually with my own hands grabbing their beard and ripping it out of their face. I mean, he's done nothing violent to them. I mean, even when someone attacks you, like I've been in a couple fights as a kid and like, I never got to like full rage mode. where like, I'm going to kill this dude. You know what I mean? Like I've never got there. I always was like kind of in between, you know, like just enough to get this over with, you know, like I was never at the point where I'm going to rip out this dude's beard. I mean, we were children, so there was no beards involved, but like, I was never at that place. And so thinking like, what kind of hate do you have to have for someone who's never even physically harmed you where you take delight in ripping out their beard and spitting in their face? Like, it's more depraved than I think I really realized. There's more work going on there that causes a human to treat someone like that. And so like, they, they had a serious issue going on and it's because they love the praise of men. That's what Jesus indicts in them. He says, you love the praise of men. That's the indictment that leads to them murdering Jesus. It's serious that we think about this. So it, one, I got a word study here, basically, starting on page two under hypocrites. And the reason I do that is because Jesus calls in this and because I think we have fundamental misconceptions of what a hypocrite is in our day. Right? So I'm like, well, let's figure out what a hypocrite is. And basically, I'm not going to walk you through this whole thing, but if you're curious, that's basically my study through the entire What a Hypocrite Means. I'm going to give you the highlights and the main points. So the background uh, is of uh, acting a part. That's where this word comes from. Especially in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus condemns those who practice their piety as show. Right, It's not sincere. They don't actually do it. They're pretending so they get praise. Right? The term denotes not simply a conscious act of dissimulation, but the perverse blindness of those who judge others without considering their own faults. Through his teaching and actions, Jesus revealed to his hearers the unhappy state of their delusion and sought to open their eyes to their true situation before God. Whenever we come to the realization, if Jesus looked at you and me and he said, you know what, you're a hypocrite, Will. He's not saying it as, I hate your guts, Will. He's saying, I love you so much, I want to tell you your real condition so it can be changed, right? So even when Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, it's not, I hate your guts, and I hope you all burn one day. It's, I see what you're truly like, and I'm going to tell you so that you could change, right? So I just want to say, because we read the scripture sometimes, and I think we read it wrong. We read Jesus with the wrong tone, the heart with the wrong tone, uh, and so... Maybe change it up. So the Lord chastised these Pharisees, not, not because of their serious and pious attitude towards the law, right? He's not like, man, you guys take the law too serious. You're really following it. I wish you guys would chill out a little bit and relax, right? He says, rather, it was their understanding of righteousness and their ways of evading its demands. They were evading the demands of the law through their religious structure they created. And that's what he condemns is hypocrisy. So uh, at the top of page three, under Roman numeral four, I don't know if you're like me, but Roman numerals always take, like, work to figure out what they are. You know, I'm like, mm, I plus V equals four. So under one there, it says, from a divided heart. In the Septuagint, when we study this word out, the sense that we gain is that it's from a divided heart. So you're divided. That's why you're hypocritical. All right. Uh, If you go under under the Gospels, one of the senses under one there is duplicity. I want to contrast this idea that it's not that single devotion to Jesus. What leads you to be hypocritical isn't that you believe I don't want to be a liar, but I told a lie again, you're a hypocrite. That's not what a hypocrite is. It's I want this and I want that. That's what the base nature of hypocrisy is. I want the praises of men, but I also want to be perceived as being spiritual. That's hypocrisy. You have a duplicitous heart. And Jesus says, I want a single heart. I want a single eye. I want undivided attention and focus. And that's that's the cure for a, a hypocritical nature, is that you say, I'm going to give my whole attention to Jesus. I'm going to put the one thing first and not be concerned about those other things. So Um, summary of a hypocrite under E right there above four says a hypocrite is someone who wants to be portrayed in a certain way with no intention of living that way. Thus pretending that's different than to a believer who wants to live right before the Lord, but keeps failing. That doesn't make you a hypocrite, right? You're just a weak and immature believer, right? We, we know the story. I think I've shared this with you guys where, uh, was it Peter, James, and John, they go to pray with Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane and they fall asleep and he kind of says, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He said, you have a willing spirit, but you're basically an immature believer. And so what happens is Peter ends up denying Jesus, right? And he comes back and Jesus restores Peter. And he says, hey, Peter, do you love me? And we know the story. And Jesus says three times, Peter says, yes, Jesus wasn't in need of the revelation of Peter's love. Who was in need of the revelation? Peter was in need of it. He thought, I'm a hypocrite. I said, I would go to the end with you, Jesus, and die. But when a girl asked me if I was your follower, I denied you and I got out of town. And he says, I don't deserve to be in your kingdom. I'll go back to fishing. And so that's where Jesus finds him. Jesus says, no, Peter, you have a wrong evaluation of yourself. You you love me. You just have weak flesh. You're immature in your walk with me so far, but that doesn't make it insincere and not authentic. So that was a big point for me. That's why I share it with you. Um, going on outline. Let's look at these. So we're going to look at giving prayer and fasting. I'm at the highlight B. Each of these examples of practicing righteousness come in a recognizable pattern. Jesus pronounces a rejection of of the motive to do these things in order to be seen and recognized for doing them boom next jesus declares that their recognition is their reward that to me is like a little bit of a riddle is he actually saying it is a reward or is he mocking it as if that's no reward at all because the praises of men are so fickle think about you one day and then they're not thinking about the next people guess who people think about the most themselves right they're not thinking about you and me afterwards right and to long for that is just vanity it's just chasing the wind so he goes on three jesus gives instruction on how to do these things for the father's recognition because he is always watching and he has perfect memory and he remembers everything I mean, contrast that with humans, right? If we do it for them, they don't remember, they don't care because they want glory and honor themselves, and we're doing it so they like us. Or we can do it for the Father who sees, longs for it, will always remember what we did for him. And he's touched by it. We're, what makes more sense, right? So Jesus then promises a reward from the Father if done with the right motives. All right, general observations. Uh, I ask an awkward question in the homework, and I I need to revise these homeworks because everybody struggles to understand. I I even struggle. I'm like, what am I asking here? But uh, I ask something about literary something or other. What are some literary devices you see in this section? One of the things I'm looking for is that you see this repetition of when you. There's a repetition of the phrase that blocks out these three things, right? And it gives us an idea. It reveals a little bit of stuff to us. So he says, when you give... When you pray and when you fast, what's one of the things we learn when someone says, when you? What's implied? That we're doing it. Sorry, I got a little lost. I heard like four things at the same time. It implies that you're doing it, right? It implies that we give. It makes it not optional. That this is the base understanding of what it is to be Christian. That Christians give. Those who follow Jesus, pray. Those who follow Jesus, and this is the one that's the most awkward for us because it's not normal, is we fast. That that's not um, unordinary, I don't know how to say that, but that's the normal Christian life. And these things, this is the other one, these aren't just for Bill Johnston, Lou Engle, whoever the most radical Christian you can think of to do. Right? This is for the new believer. This is for the stay-at-home mom. This is for the businessman. This is for the student who works at McDonald's and goes to school ministry at the same time. All three of these are not like for different walks and seasons and the radical and the not radical. This is for every believer. Jesus calls every believer to this. This is normal Christianity. It's basic 101, right? Let's go to page four. Let's, so Matthew, let's read 6, 1 to 4. So we're on page four, and then we're going to read Matthew 6, one through four. So it says, verse one, Beware practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So some of these structure things happen in each one. And I'm going to hammer them out here under the giving passage, but they apply to prayer and fasting, right? So look at this word. This word here, I'm on C on page four. It's Elimosuni, however you pronounce that. There's there's different pronunciation schools in Greek. I learn modern. Other people know Erasmian. So the Greek word here, that's used to describe giving, or whatever it is, to the needy. In the fifth beatitude, we have a similar word from the same word group, that's an adjective used to describe being merciful. So I remember, because when I, when I went for, through this first, I tried to work my way through in the Greek, right? Blah, 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 blah. I struggled through. And I came across that and said, whoa, wait a minute. I recognized that word. I was like, that was the fifth beatitude, the mercy one. And I'm like, wait a minute. Because in my Bible, it says, Giving and giving and mercy don't seem anywhere connected, right, as words in English, right, or whatever language you're in. But in Greek, they came from the same root word, they're the same cognate, right, same family, however you would say that. And that tells us something that tells us that one of the practical ways you show mercy is giving, that that's how they understood it in their culture, in their time. To be merciful. Blessed are the merciful. We could change and say, blessed are those who give. Blessed are the ones who give away their money to others. For they will be given back to, right? In the future. That's the idea, right? So we get this idea. That's one of the expressions of mercy. Um, so this sound no oh, trumpet, right? Uh, the question we all ask is, did they really sound a trumpet back then, like in the streets? And there's no evidence that they did. So we think this is Jesus exaggerating the condition of their heart, saying it's as if you're sounding a trumpet. That's how bad you want the attention of people, that you go around saying, look at me, look at me, what I'm about to do. And that's what he's saying. So we don't think they actually did that. But Jesus is explaining that's basically what they're doing. So that's a religious spirit, right? Doing it for the eyes of man. So we get the same idea in the prayer and fasting again, doing it for the eyes of men. And it's to draw attention to ourselves so people see how spiritual or committed or radical we are. I'm like hoping this is hitting home. Like it looks like everybody's sleeping today, but like we're the ones that are in that community of like radical believers We're world changers, revivalists, right? And we're the ones who want to be perceived that way, right? So, like, we're the ones that should be like, ooh, Jesus, I've done that. I know I've done that. I've watched others do that, and help me not. I don't want that to be my motivation. So, they may be praised by others. So, 6-2 says, thus, when you give to knees, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others, The Pharisees traded in the praise that comes from God for the praise of men. In essence, they esteem men as greater than God. I'm going to skip that next note. So they've received their reward. Page five. This This is shocking to me, that you can do good things, giving prayer and fasting with the wrong motive, and it's actually bad for you right? It actually corrupts you on the inside. On the outside, you can look like the spiritual elite, right? But on the inside, you can be rotting away because of the motives in which you're doing it, and nobody else will know. Jesus knows, but nobody else will. That also keeps us from what? Judging other people, good or bad, right? Wow, that person, they're so gnarly and committed. Maybe, I don't know for sure because I can't see their hearts. Man, that person, what a, they're so terrible, da, da 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 Maybe, I don't know because I can't see their hearts, right? It keeps us from judging when we start to connect to this because we realize I don't know what's going on in the inside. I don't know where they're at and what their sincerity before the Lord is. So now, now there's that last phrase, right? Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And so usually people wonder, I wondered, right? What does that mean? And I think just in our giving is we're not supposed to do it so that people see us giving and let everybody know, like instead of bringing like a dollar bill to the offering bag, we bring a whole bag of coins, like dump it in, you know, like everybody here, that would probably sound really lame today, but the idea of getting heard, right? So he says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. I think the idea here is just as you don't want the praise of men, don't pat yourself on the back. Don't think I'm so spiritual, look how much I gave. And in your own head, you're doing an own evaluation of yourself like, I know none of my friends gave this much money. I know all three of us were given $1,000, and I just put all 1,000, blah, 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 and I see them, and they went and bought, blah, 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 blah. And he says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Don't get impressed with your own spirituality and start to think you're something. Right? He says, do it in secret. So I have this little note on tithing, but To think of tithing 10% as a command that God gives in the same way the Pharisees understood the command, do not murder. Remember we talked about this? Creates the same problem in people's hearts where they think that if they give 10%, they're fulfilling what God intended in the command to tithe. It's a shallow understanding of tithing where we think that's what matters. I did the 10%, God loves math. And so if I do that, then he's pleased with me, right? What is the intent behind it? Why did God instruct it, right? We're not going to go down that journey, but just highlighting that for you so that you have a right heart when you give. Let it be in secret. And now the reason that we do things in secret, right, isn't, and this is where it comes in, whether it's prayer, fasting, giving, and this, the analogy works better with fasting, I think, but we we decide to fast. We're going to fast. I'm going to fast today. And then somebody invites us over and we're like, all right, I'll go. And then they're like, hey, here's a piece of pizza. you're like, Can't eat like what are you fasting like man you just ruined it i lost my reward i guess i will eat because it's vanity now and we think that if somebody finds out that we fasted or we prayed or we gave that it's null and void you don't get a reward anymore no it's the motive the motive nullifies what you're doing if the motive is to be seen and get the spiritual recognition then it's nullified you've received your reward if someone finds out you fasted you gave so much or whatever that doesn't nullify it if your heart wasn't to get their praise. Right? If you keep a pure heart before the Lord and you're doing it, you keep on fasting even though they ask you, yeah, I am fasting today. Uh, so I'm going to pass on that pizza. And you just keep on going because you don't care about their praise. God doesn't say, cross that out of the books. No reward for them in heaven. <laughs> we laugh, but that's how people really think. You know, that's how. So don't think like that. So at the bottom of page five, I have this note. It says it's hidden. The reward that God's gonna give us, it's hidden in this age. But God will reveal it in the next. Many of the rewards that God promises throughout the Bible have to do with him expressing to all the way in which he felt about our devotion to him in this age. Because there's this idea that I'm not doing it for the reward. I'm not doing it for the reward. Jesus, I'm just doing it for you. I don't need a reward, Jesus. There's even like a hymn, I think, that says that. Like, I forget what it is, but. And there's this idea that I'm more spiritual than Jesus, right? Jesus is motivating me by reward, but Jesus, let me tell you, I don't need it. I don't know, Jesus, you don't know humans. You didn't create them. Wait a minute. You created them, and he knows what we need, He knows that that's the way he creates to be rewarded. So what's the point of the reward, right? And this is my opinion. I think it's an expression of how much he felt about what you did. So in the age to come, there's this verse. Look at this in Luke 12, 1 to 3. This used to be a scary verse to me, right? Now it's kind of flopped. It's like both scary and awesome, depending on how you live, so it says this, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. He began to say to his disciples, first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. You should be terrified of that, like, Oh no, all my deepest, darkest sins are going to be told one day. And that would like was one of my motivations to like have that be a very minimal list of things, right? So, Jesus, like, we don't have to spend a lot of time and he goes over fast, right? Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I think there's a positive way of looking at this verse too that not only will he disclose, and I, this is my personal opinion, I think anything you've repented of, like, I'm not 100% on this, but I'll say it anyways. I think whatever you repented of gets washed away, and we won't deal with it again at the judgment seat of Christ. I think that's why you repent in this age. And so when we stand before him, we won't deal with it again. It's already been dealt with. I think we stand before him as believers for the issues we didn't repent of and we didn't have. And then the issue becomes, well, when does like, unrepentance lead to like not being saved? And I don't know that line, Right. That's Will's opinion, all right? So I think Jesus, though, when we do stand before him and he rewards those, he's going to shout from the rooftops how he felt about your love and devotion to him. It mattered. She prayed when no one saw and she didn't stop. This man or woman fasted one day, two days a week for the length of their life, and they got no recognition for it, and they did it because they longed for me. He says, that touched my heart, and I want all the world to know how I felt about what you did. I think that's part of the reward. His, his proclamation to the entirety of the population that day of how he felt about you and how you lived. That's a story I don't want a little list on. I want the longest list on. I want it to go for like days, you know what I mean? Like, let's see how long we can make this thing, Jesus. And I want to stand there and hear him say how he felt about me every single thing I did because he keeps really good records. And so I encourage you with that. Now, in this, this journey of battling who we're doing things for, the praises of men or the praises of God, or whose reward do we want, I think this is something we have to resist for the rest of our lives. I don't think we conquer in one moment We sign up today or whenever you sign up, but it comes back and, at least this is my experience, it slowly finds its way back into your heart. And all of a sudden you realize, oh my gosh, that thing is taking root and flowering again. I thought I dealt with this, but it comes back. We see others get the promotion we want. How do we handle that? Are we envious? Are we jealous of them? Does, Does our mind bring to account all the reasons they don't qualify and we should have been picked and we're overqualified and they're underqualified? How are we doing it? Where do we find our praise from? Do we trust that God has us where we're at, right? So we're still talking about giving. If it doesn't feel like it, that's where we're at. So Matthew 6, 19 to 21, it says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Pause. Let's read that again. This is the command of Jesus, all right? Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth except for, but in the case of, nope, none of that's there. That is a hard absolute right there to deal with, to hear what Jesus says. The mind races with all the exceptions, if you're anything like me, but what about savings? What about inheritance? What about, and there's like a thousand other things that we ask and we're we're missing what Jesus says because we're rushing right away to justify our lives. That we can't even take a moment to maybe even feel a little thing and maybe just say, No, 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 you're okay. But let's feel the sting for a minute. Let's hear it. It says, Do not store up for yourself treasure. Why, Jesus? Why would you say that to us? He says, Because moth and rust destroy. This is where thieves break in and steal. So the argument here, the logic is it won't last. It will perish and rot. It's a bad investment, in other words right? But lay up for yourselves, second command of Jesus, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. How do we do that, right? And he goes on, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break into steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I have lots of thoughts on money, and we're not going to cover them all here and how we do this. I want to read for you. This is, I always look forward to this part right here. Because these aren't my sayings. These are sayings from early church fathers and what they thought about. I mean, these are the guys right after the apostles. Apostles teach them, they grow up, they become the leaders in the church, early church. This is what they say about some money stuff. I'm not gonna comment what they say. I'm just gonna read it and let it hang, all right? Here's what Hermas says around 150. Foremost of all evil desires is the desire after another's wife or husband. There's also the desire after extravagance many useless dainties and drinks and many other foolish luxuries. For all luxury is foolish and empty to the servants of God. These then are the evil desires that slay the servants of God. Here's Hermas again. He says, therefore, instead of lands, buy afflicted souls, according as each one is able, and visit widows and orphans. This next one is my personal favorite by Tertullian in 198. He says, I doubt that the leg that has rejoiced in the anklet will allow itself to be squeezed into the shackle. I fear that the neck beset with pearl and emerald nooses will give no room to the broadsword. For that reason, blessed ones, let us meditate on hardships so we will not fill them. Let us abandon luxuries and we will not regret them. Let us stand ready to endure every violence, having nothing with which we may fear to leave behind. It is these things that are the bonds which retard our hope. Cyprian later in 250, he says this, Let us consider beloved brethren what the congregation of believers did in the time of the apostles. Back then at the beginning, the mind flourished with greater virtues. The faith of believers burned with a warmth of faith that was still new. Back then they sold houses and farms and gladly and generously presented the proceeds proceeds to the apostles to be distributed to the poor. You know, the major point I take away from these is that clinging to finances will cause me to cling to my life and I'll value it more than I value Jesus. All right, prayer. So we're in six, five. Let's read six, five through six. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So I just want to comment on this really quick, because we kind of did the summary of not doing things before people. Same deal with prayer. Uh, But Jesus isn't against public or corporate prayer settings. Like, that's not the point he's making. He's not like, I never want to see you guys ever pray in public again. Like, that's not the idea that's going on here. So just... Wash that one out. He's against doing it in order to get spiritual brownie points in the eyes of others. That's what he doesn't like. All right, let's read the next part. 7 to 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard. For the many words, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. So what's the issue here? So they have a different issue, Gentiles. And it's weird. Isn't that weird how we have this issue about what the Pharisees do? And all of a sudden now he's talking about how the Gentiles do. He only does that for prayer. He doesn't give us, hey, this is how the Gentiles give. This is how the Gentiles fast. Don't be like them. He only does that with prayer. Why the extended conversation on prayer, right? Why the prayer there? These are questions I don't know the answer to, but it's making me think he's spending way more time on the subject of prayer than he is on giving and fasting. Is it... A bigger issue? Is it more important? One of the interesting things about the Lord's prayer here uh, in verses, what is that, 9 through 13, that's the center of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the chiastic center of the Sermon on the Mount. That says something, right? So, why does Jesus comment on the Gentiles and what they pray? And I think there's two things he's going at, right? One, Gentiles would pray, and it was almost like it's the magic words. If you have the right incantation, you'll get what you ask for. And Jesus is saying, that's not how I want you to pray. It's not a magic word. It's not teach me the right phrase, Holy Spirit come, and if I do my hand just right here, then that person gets healed. He's not looking for a recipe. He doesn't want you disconnected with him and just have some incantation that gets you what you want. He's not interested in that. He also says, I don't want you to relate to me thinking, because the Gentiles, they would go to their temples, right? And they thought the gods were uninterested in them right? The gods were up there, Mount Olympus, wherever they were. And if they wanted to get their intention, right, to get what they wanted, they would pester them until the gods were so annoyed that the gods would give them what they wanted. And so they would pester them with really long prayers. And if I do this long, if I keep doing this, then the gods will finally hear me and give me what I want. And Jesus is saying, I don't want you thinking of God like that. It's not a magic incantation. You don't have to memorize some recipe to get your prayer answered. That's not how it works. I also don't think, I don't want you thinking, I'm not interested in what you're saying. In fact, I'm so interested, I already know what it is. I'm already thinking about you, waiting for you for the second you'll cry out to me and ask me. And then the next question becomes, well, why do we have to ask if he already knows what we're going to ask? Right? And I have some simple, I think it's in here, but I'm just in, I'm kind of skipping it. Oh, there we down. Down under four on seven. First is partnership. I don't know. These aren't in importance. I'm just going to list them out. Partnership and co-laboring. He's decided for whatever reason, the way he's going to govern the universe is in partnership with humanity. And he says he won't do our part and we can't do his part. It's in co-laboring with him. He says, you ask me it and I'll make it happen. He says, I'm going to leave a significant Uh, amount of stuff undone in the earth and it's up to you to see what happens. I leave it in your hands. You ask me and I'll do it. So there's that labor, there's that co-laboring with him. That's the reason why we ask. Jesus in Psalms two, he has to ask. Jesus has to ask. That's shocking to me. You would think Jesus wouldn't have to ask, but it says, ask of me the nations and I'll give them to you as your inheritance. Jesus, the son of God, he has to ask in prayer to receive what the God has promised him. So God tells us what he wants on the earth. He promises it to us. We then ask him for it and then he does it. That's how prayer works. Now, why else do we pray? Right? I think it's because God wants to have the relationship. He wants us to talk with him. He wants the fellowship and the communion. He doesn't just want us getting our things devoid and unconnected that it was him who did it. He wants us seen, right? Let's say we have a bill that gets paid. Here's a better one. You have groceries you need. You don't have any more money, right? And you need food. You're out for the next two weeks. I've got no more money. I've got no food. And God says, I want you to ask me for it. I want you to ask me. He says, I know that you need it. But I want you to connect that when you ask, and I answer that prayer, that it was me listening. And I did it. And so it's through that process that we develop the bond that he does really hear me. He really is listening. But if we take out the asking drama and the dialogue with him, we don't connect it. And he just becomes this fairy tale Santa who just gives us whatever we want. And he already knows it, so he'll just make it happen. And I get my Lamborghini, and I get to go live in a a yacht by the ocean and just have fun all day devoid of knowing God. He says, I'm not interested in that. I'm going to set it up where you've got to get to know me. And in the process, you'll find out that I'm a father who wants to give you those things. I want you to have it. So those are my reasons why I think... He's, he's teaching them to think rightly so that when they approach the Lord in prayer that they do it rightly. Because if you do it wrong, right, if you come to the Father in prayer time and time again you think he doesn't want to give it to you, he doesn't really care, he's not listening, it damages the human heart. And the human heart is weak and fragile, and it can only take so much damaging before it says it's too painful to go to God in prayer again. I don't want to stand before him feeling like he doesn't hear me, that he doesn't like me, that he's not concerned. And so it's just easier not to pray anymore. It's just easier. I don't want to feel rejected one more time. And Jesus said, I don't want you to approach the Father like that. That's not what he's like. And so he's instructing us on how to do this. So he tells us, how then shall we pray? So, let's look at the Lord's Prayer. One of the the difficulties with the Lord's Prayer that we have that we have to recognize at the outset is our overfamiliarity with it. We've heard it too many times in our life where we just can ramble it off with no brain thought at all. And it's just blah, 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 and we don't even know what we just said and we don't connect to the Lord in it. So we have to slow down and say, God, I know I've got a hardened and heart when it comes to this passage. I've heard it too many times and it doesn't touch me anymore. Touch me with it. So we're gonna look at each of these little f- facts about it and talk our way through it. Ooh. Right off the bat, the first phrase is our father. Let me back up. I think I said it somewhere else. Let's read it and then I'm going to do a little dissecting. It says, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's three petitions, right, in the first half for God's glory, right? Did you hear that? Our Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Three petitions for God's glory. And then there's three petitions for man's need. So it's in order, we pray for God's glory first and it's in that context then we come to him with our needs, right? So our father, in the Greek, the very first word isn't our, it's father. The very starting point of prayer is the recognition of him as father. That's how Jesus teaches us how to pray and saying, hey, you have to know him as father. I want you to approach him as father. I want you to know he cares about you he cares. He knows what you need. And so that's the entry point into prayer is knowing him as Father. And like that could be books, right? There's so many books we could write on this. But, and then the another one, we get a little insight from this word our, right? Our father. One is that we're a family together. Another thing we learn from this thought is that this is probably a prayer that was prayed in community. They're saying. Not my father. It's not a prayer. I mean, but didn't Jesus just teach us to go pray in our closets? And now he's teaching us prayer. Why does he say our father? Because he was anticipating, because they had their daily prayers, right? The Jewish community in the synagogues they pray morning, noon, and night. And they, he's saying, I want you guys to pray this. And the early church did this. They prayed this prayer together three times a day wow, you know, they were able to do that because they had synagogues, like, on every block in their neighborhoods. There was, like, a synagogue, like, in walking distance of your house, and so all the Jews would come together for their prayer times and this kind of thing, right? So one of it, that tells me, whoa, this is a communal prayer that we pray together. I should have some kind of communal family mindset in mind when I pray these things. I made it a goal of mine years ago that I was going to try praying this prayer every single day. I haven't kept that goal. I miss days, and some days I pray it more than once, but, like, I probably don't go a week without praying it. Like, I think that would be an exaggeration. Maybe I have. But when you start to pray this every day, and I'm not just rambling it off, right? I'm, I'm thinking, I'm trying to be engaged with it. You start to get new insights. And you start to see it ways you've never sought before. So my pitch to you is that you guys would take up that mantle that you would pray this prayer every single day. Maybe multiple times a day. Go for it. Do it three times a day. And think about what you're saying and let the Holy Spirit begin to like, over time, Like, let me tell you a little more about this Our Father. Let me tell you a little bit more about Our Daily Bread. Let me talk to you and then it'll inspire you. And like, I know one of the ones that caught my attention was that forgive us our debts, right? And I was just praying and I just took time to think about, is there anybody I'm not forgiving? And just taking time and thinking, wow, you know, forgiveness is a big deal to Jesus. And then, maybe then I, I think of it and I forgive whoever and then I Think, Lord, are there other people I know that don't have forgiveness? Because of the hour aspect. God, would you help them? Give them a heart to forgive. Would you heal the wounds that keep them in hinder? And all of a sudden you're like, wow, actually I really enjoy this prayer. It's not just liturgy with no heart behind it or meaning. So I want to encourage you to go after it, even if it's dry and dull and boring at first, and stick with it over time. So uh, I'm on page nine, top page nine, number six. Only those united with Christ can call God Father. God loves everyone, but only those who believe in his Son are children of God. Some people don't like that, but it's just the Bible. All right, in heaven, this phrase, in heaven. We're not only praying to God our Father, but the idea in heaven isn't that he's distant and far away. It's the idea that he has all power, that he's above it all. There's nothing he can't affect. That's the idea going on there. And I'm sure there's more revelation. Like, don't be limited by this. Like, this is, we're, we're in kindergarten class right now, right? So, hallowed be your name. This is an expression of his worth and value to us. Hallowed means to treat us holy. Name refers to the nature and character of God. When we pray this, we're praying for ourselves and also other people to have the revelation of who God is and that they would honor him the way he's worthy of. I find myself praying, God, you're so worthy of this. And I, maybe I'll pick an aspect of his nature, his mercy and his kindness, that he loves us when we we don't treat him good, when we crucify him. And I, maybe I'll be chewing on and be like, God, that the world would know this, that they would look at this attribute of you and say that, man, he's so worthy because he loved us while we were still enemies. And it just, it just take time to do that. And so we want that... Uh, I think this next one is Mike Bickle. He says this, when we pray for his name to be hallowed, we're praying that the Father take the highest place in our lives, hearts, and worship, and that he work in us and in others so that we see and respond appropriately to his greatness. We're asking God to release his power to cause more people to see the truth about him and refuse to take his name in vain or to use it in jest, an expression of anger. We also revere God's name by not asking for anything contrary to his glorious name or will. It's so much more than just don't say... Jesus, when you step your toe on the board or something, right? It's way bigger than that. You know, at the very last note, the bottom of page nine says, primary then is the desire for God to receive glory, to be hallowed. This means that our honoring, uh, our honoring does not come first, that our own desire for glory to be revered among us should be subservient to God's exaltation. This means we personally need to be willing to be humbled if it were to bring greater glory to God. We need to not be concerned with the greatness of our own reputation, but the greatness of his. Your kingdom come, next phrase. We're praying for God's value system to be established on the earth when we pray that, and all that he desires to be. We are also literally praying for his literal coming, that when he actually rules over the entire planet for forever. That's actually included here. So, some there's actually a way, and I've read some stuff on this, where some people, you can read this prayer in, in, in an eschatological light where all the petitions are looking to the final end, right? Does that make sense? So when I say your kingdom come, we're, we're not looking for anything today. We're fully only envisioning it on the day he actually establishes a real physical kingdom on the earth. And then... It says, give us this daily, our daily bread. I'm kind of skipping ahead here. But there's some really weird stuff going on in the Greek in this phrase. right? And it's like, I'm not going to belabor that with you. I'm just going to give you the summary conclusion. But these words are hard to put in order. It could just as easily be rendered. Give us our bread for tomorrow. And if that was the prayer, give us our bread for tomorrow, it's this eschatological prayer saying, bring the promises you have promised us to fulfillment today. Let it happen now. So there is a way to read the Lord's Prayer where it's all very eschatological. I do that sometimes, and then sometimes I take it back and I bring it into today, and I'm torn between the two, so I just go with both, right? When I look at it exegetically, I don't know how to decide. Like, there's equal valid points for both. So just want to throw that out there to you. When this prayer for the kingdom, I write here in the nights, nice, I'm just going to follow the highlights. The kingdom only comes to the measure we pray. Like, that's just a simple observation I make there. Like, pray for the kingdom to come. Well, it only comes. He's left it in our hands how much the kingdom comes. And it only comes to the measure we ask for it to come. That's insane to me, right? The measure that I have, the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, is dependent on me asking for it. The measure in which I live out the Sermon on the Mount is dependent on me asking for his help in it. We're dependent on him. There's... I mean, prayer should not be neglected. It's so essential. Uh, That's another thing that hit me praying this, trying to pray this every day. Uh, This one, this last phrase, that says, and lead us not into temptation. I mean, it's a daily prayer, right? In verse 11, give us this day, our daily bread. So we're assuming we're supposed to pray it every day. And then he says, and lead us not into temptation. I remember realizing one day his praying, wow, how many assaults of the enemy and temptations have I gone through that weren't necessary because I didn't ask Jesus for help that day. How much could have been avoided? I always said, God, keep me from temptation today. How much heartache and pain and suffering could be avoided if we took this seriously? I mean, Jesus knows our condition. He says, you know what? I know you guys. You're gonna need help every single day. Ask for help to be delivered from temptation every single day. Do not let a day go by. In fact, if you want, do it three times a day. It'll be better for you. And And it's our recognition that, wow, Jesus knows this really good to think that I could make it a day without asking him. And it's naive, but it's still arrogant. It's an arrogant heart posture that says, and it's naive, and so I'm not saying it's like the sinister thing, but it's still arrogance to think that we don't need him. We don't acknowledge our dependency upon him for the ability to walk and not compromising in temptation, right? Back to what we're talking about, kingdom. So his kingdom is present now, and that God's has a people on the earth who carry his value system and have access to the power and authority of his kingdom and can act as ambassadors of that kingdom where in the future his literal kingdom will be physically established on the earth. We pray for both. And our primary allegiance is to his kingdom being established. I think of that in two ways. First, nationally, right? I'm a Christian before I'm an American or whatever nation you're from. We're bound in Christ, and that is my primary goal. Yes, I love America. I pray for America, but my hope is in Christ and his kingdom. My hope doesn't go down when the president I don't want doesn't get elected or does get elected. I don't find my hope in that. My hope is in Christ and his kingdom. Secondly, I pray for his kingdom to come in the context of not my ministry. It's not about my little kingdom being established. It's about his kingdom going forth. And if that looks like some part of me having a ministry, sweet. If it looks like me being unknown and insignificant in the eyes of everybody, awesome. Let it be as long as your kingdom comes, Lord. It doesn't matter. So those are ways in which we think about that. So your will be done on earth as in heaven. Next phrase. So Jesus not only taught us to pray that the Father's will be done, he himself also prayed it in his own prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Think about that. Jesus had to pray that not his will would be done, but your will be done. That's kind of like weird. We're getting like some weird, tricky, like Trinity stuff there. But the idea, the conclusion I come to is if Jesus had to pray to realign his will with the Father's will, I'm definitely gonna need to pray for my will to be realigned with his wills. It means I'm gonna naturally get off course and want what will wants, and that's not necessarily what God wants. I'm going to have theologies that creep in and get in there that tell me this is good, this is, and I'm going to have to x them, cut them off, and be like, wait a minute, that actually isn't the will of the Lord. It was cool, it was good, my friends applauded it, but hey, I've got to submit it to the Lord and realign it with His will. So when I pray that prayer, that's one of the things I think about. I think about, is my will in alignment? Your will be done. In my life, in my family's life, in my friend's life, in our church, in our country, across the globe, what is your will? What does it look like? Sometimes we assume we know what his will looks like. History tells us we don't always know. Jesus' very prayer tells us that it doesn't come but by prayer getting connected to his will. You won't just fall into it. So we've got to reset ourselves uh, so the question becomes, and this is a prayer, so let's look at these three petitions. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And it gets modified by this phrase, on earth. So in what manner do you want his name to be hallowed? In what manner should his kingdom come? In what manner should his will be done? Well, let it be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let's take that phrase by phrase. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In what way is God's will done in heaven? Every way, right? Is his will for the conditions of heaven the exact same as the conditions for the earth? Everybody's like looking at the notes, like, I don't want to get this wrong. I would say the conditions aren't exactly the same. He has a slightly different will in heaven than he does on earth, right? Now, take this with a grain of salt. I'm like, I know that I'm treading on like Bethel holy ground here, so I'm going lightly, but i got to be faithful to what I think the text says, right? The way we're to understand that. Well, for instance, in heaven... There's no marriage. Is it God's will on earth as it is in heaven? So God wants no marriage on earth because there's no marriage in heaven. No, right? So the point is he has a different will for heaven and that he does on the earth. But what we want is his full will, just as his full will is done in heaven, we want his full will done on the earth. So we want to know what is it you're doing on the earth? What are your plans in this age? What are your ultimate goals? We want that to be fully manifested. It doesn't look exactly like heaven all the time. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. That's why I put, when the kingdom come, we're ambassadors. We have all the authority. So like, I'm not saying like, God doesn't want healing or anything like that. Like, of course I think he wants healing. Of course he wants us to do those things. Cast out the demons, right? But I'm saying we got to take a little bit, more nuance to that phrase is not just anything you can imagine in heaven, is exactly everything God wants on the earth right now. In heaven, there's no more like witnessing, right? Everybody knows Jesus. Of course, He wants us to evangelize, right? He doesn't come back. Why? Because He gives time that all men should repent. Even He realizes there's seasons and there's a difference going on here. So I'm pretty laboring. I just want us to think a little bit about that. We want His full will on earth just as His full will is done in heaven, right? I think we can skip the rest of page 10. So 11, this is a huge verse, I think. I mean, maybe there's like 200 huge verses in my mind in the Bible, but this is one of them. It's foundational in my like big picture Bible theology, like how I think of things. So I'm gonna make it known to you guys. But in Ephesians 1, 9, 10 says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. So he's got this big, will, this purpose that he's set forth, this big plan, right? He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So what's going to happen when everything comes together to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And eventually, eventually the will that God has for heaven and the will that he has for earth will be fully synonymous. But right now they're a little bit different, right? And he's going to unite them together where it's all whole. That's what Ephesians 1, 9 to 10 says to me think about it yourself. All right. Three requests for our personal needs. Give us this day our daily bread. God is already aware of our daily needs and isn't in need of the information, but wants to be in daily conversation with us concerning our needs. We're to look for God for our sustenance. One of the things I like about this prayer is that it's not too small for God. I mean, that seems like the pettiest thing to ask God for. Like, hey God, can I have lunch today? You know, like that seems like I mean, he's got big things to do. I mean, he's making planet spins and universes expand and light travel. He's doing all this stuff. And it's like, hey, can I get a piece of bread today? Because I'm hungry. And he says, ask him for that. He's concerned about the pettiest, smallest things going on in your life. I mean, that's one way. And there's then, And sometimes in America, we're so detached from that. Like, when was the last time I needed food? Never. You know, like, I don't remember a day I ever didn't have the ability to eat food, right? Like it's so easy for me. I have a fridge full of food, right? I have so much food, I throw away food, right? So we're disconnected from this. And so sometimes what I found myself doing in this prayer is I'll say, give us this day our daily bread. And I'll remember the hour. And I'll just start thinking of those in China, in India, wherever, where maybe they don't have bread today. And I'll begin to ask for them, God, would you make sure your people have food today? Those, I mean, he cares about simple needs like that. It's not like, I love to take the spiritual, give us the bread of heaven and life and your words and revelation. And I'm good with that. I pray those prayers too. But it's also, he cares about the physical needs of his people. He actually cares about those things. So uh, I love it. Isn't give me, it's give us. All right, let's go on. I already told you about the alternate reading bottom of page 11 forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors reminds me that I am in need of forgiveness that you're needing forgiveness and that I need to forgive others i love here's a story i like at the top page 12 so i was sitting in church one sunday years ago over a decade ago i don't know maybe maybe 20 years ago i don't even remember uh, and bill was saying something along the lines he said this he said, imagine if you'd never sinned. Right, just do, just do this little exercise with me. Imagine you've never sinned, never sinned. You've never sinned, right? Not once, you've never messed up. And so I followed, I fell for Bill's trick. I didn't see where he was going and I did it. I actually started to imagine what that would be like. And now imagine you've done all the right things too. Not only did you never sin, but you did the right things too, right? And I, I began to think, that would be awesome. That would be so good, I mean, what would my prayer times be like? What would worship be like? My Bible time it would be so good if it was like that, right? If I had never screwed up ever. And then Bill says, that's what you have in Christ. And I was like, dang it, I fell for it. I should have known this. And it revealed that, man, I don't always relate to God as I can, as I should, as he wants me to. And so I love that little trick, and it helps me realize, oh, my goodness, you have a mental block here, Will. But we're truly forgiven, and when we see our forgiveness, we talked about this, right, with, uh, I forget, one of the Beatitudes, we kind of did this. But it helps you forgive others. Right? Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. It's assumed, when you've received forgiveness, it's assumed that you forgive, that you're a person who forgives others. That's assumed in this prayer. And he has that phrase down at the end, for if you forgive others, verse 14, their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. ah, right? oh, yeah, of course, love it. Next verse, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. That's intense. I mean, in my mind, there's the unforgivable sin, which is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And we're like, oh my goodness, that's really scary. Don't wanna do it. And then there's unforgiveness, which somehow also cuts you off from God where he can't forgive you. And so when I think of like the two things never to do, ever, 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 it's unforgivable sin, which none of us are like, I don't even know what that is. And then the other one is forgiveness, to not forgive somebody. And so I don't know how else to interpret that except for to say if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. And if you're not forgiving, you have to pay the price for that sin, which you can't do. Right? So I just want to point that out. All right. What about this last quote here on five? So, we do not lose our stain with God when, as sincere believers, we stumble in sin. But sin defiles our minds and quenches our hearts, thus hindering our ability to enjoy the presence of God. So we understand that the petition to forgive us our debts is to restore communion with Jesus. Again, John tells us, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The fifth petition is asking that we would be cleansed from defiling effects of sin on her. I like that, that it's a prayer of restoration of communion with Jesus. That, hey, that's what's going on here. So next, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Wow, I just saw the clock. We gotta speed up. Let us not forget that Jesus is the one teaching us to pray these things. We need these prayers. I've already kind of hit on this. Um, the... Implied in the idea here also that there are these moments in time where Satan wants to sift us. That's what he said to Peter. He said, He asked, Jesus said, Satan's asked that he could sift you, Peter. Pray that you'll make it through. That's serious. That, I mean, that's intense. I mean, so Satan waits for these moments and he constructs these situations where you're discouraged, you're, you're low point, and he sets the stage just right because he wants to sift you. And what it means by sift, he wants to have a fall so bad, a stumble so bad, that you don't ever recover from it. That you end up denying Jesus and walking away for good. He says, I want to set the scenario. And Jesus says, pray that that doesn't happen to you that you don't face it, you would make it through. I think there's three ways in which we are preserved from those like really heavy moments, right, where it can be delivered, is never having one at all. That we pray some way, That I mean, that's my first goal. Like Jesus never even let it come to be. Like don't even let it happen. Like that's what I'm going for. If that doesn't happen, I'm going for number two. That it may look like Jesus giving you strength and power by spirit to make it through the testing. That you make it through, that moment comes, you're about to curse God, but somehow the Holy Spirit strengthens you and you don't. And you stay faithful. I'm like, that's what I'm going for, number two, if I have to go through the trial and testing. Number three is an option that happened for Peter. Lastly, it may look like you're entering into a great testing and falling and failing, and yet Christ comes and restores you. So you're at least delivered from ultimate destruction. So you go through the trial, the testing, and you fail and you lose. But Jesus comes to you and he restores you anyways. That, I mean, that's, that's third case, worst case scenario, but I'll take it, man, if I can't do the other ones. So that's in my mind when I pray those things also. Deliver us from evil. Fasting, let's read this. Verse 16, chapter six. And when you fast, say it with me. We are all gonna fast. <laughs> I was trying to trick you guys into it, right? And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head. That means wash up. Don't walk around moping. Oh, man. I'm so terrible. I'm fasting. Woe is me. You know? He's saying don't do that. Just go on. Life is normal. right? You're going to have moments where you're weak and you can't do anything bad. You get a headache or something. right? That's not the point. The point is you're intentionally letting everybody know. Oh, what's, what's wrong with you? I said, oh, I've just been fasting for seven days. That's all. It'll pass. You know, and like you have to let people know. He's saying, don't do that. Pretend, let people think you're just going on about your normal life. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who's in secret and your father who's he's in secret will reward you. Fasting. So this is a practical expression of blessed are those who mourn fasting is a practical expression of mourning fasting isn't reserved just for the radicals I don't know how many times I can say that but I remember I was talking to this uh, uh this guy from Africa once and he came here and he was I forget if he was like a missionary to America from Africa and he was saying he's like one of the weirdest things to him was that nobody fasted here because in his culture everybody fasted two days a week that was just normal that's what you did and he thought that was so weird that we didn't I mean he thought a little more than weird i I'm watering it down. He's a little more intense than that. But uh, that struck him as odd. So we don't fast for God to love us. God cannot love us any more than he already does. But fasting positions us to receive more. I've heard it said it speeds up the process. Fasting makes things faster, right? Uh, 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 uh. I'll read some of these quotes to you. So basically what I got going those two, I have a different document that I had on fasting. and I basically copied and pasted that bad boy into here. So if you're like, wow, this is weird. Uh, that's why there's all this other random stuff that just seems like just thrown in the middle. But John Piper, he said, the absence of fasting is the measure of our contentment with the absence of Christ. Charles Finney wrote, I was led into a state of great dissatisfaction with my own lack of faith and love. I felt myself weak in temptation and needed frequently to hold days of fasting and prayer in order to retain communion with God that would enable me to work Revival with power. Basil, or Basil, Bishop of Caesarea, he wrote, fasting begets prophets and strengthens strong men. Fasting makes lawgivers wise. It is the soul's safeguard, the body's trusted comrade, the armor of the champion, the training of the athlete. Arthur Wallace, he wrote, fasting opens the way for the outpouring of the spirit and the restoration of God's house. Fasting in this age of the absent bridegroom is in expectation of his return. Soon there will be a midnight cry, behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. It will be too late then to fast and pray. The time is now. So I have all this stuff on fasting because I would, I mean, the dream of my heart, and you guys, I'll never know because you're not supposed to tell me, right? Is that you guys would fast on a regular basis. I know people who, who fast one day a week and it's every week. I know other people who fast two days a week, and it's every week. And they just make it part of their normal lifestyle. In the early church, they fasted two days a week. That was normal Christianity. That was part of normal Judaism. So the Christians in the early church, what they did, because they didn't want to be thought of as Jews, they said, we're going to switch the days we fast. And so they went from like Mondays and Wednesdays to Tuesdays and Thursdays or something like that. And they switched it to distinguish themselves. But they kept the idea of fasting. It was ingrained as just basic normal following Jesus. So I want to encourage you guys, and there's reasons we don't fast, right? right. One of them, I have some of this, and I ripped this off from books I've read, right? It's like, I didn't come up with all this. Uh, we have the fear of fasting. I can say for sure that is so overdone. Like that fear, like it's going to be terrible. It's going to suck. It's going to be, oh, it's going to be so hard. I'm not going to get to eat. I'm going to miss out on parties and hangouts. And, uh, and we have all these anxiety and we get anxious about it. And really just doing it isn't that bad. Like the more you fast, the more you realize, like, I'm less and less impressed with fasting. Like it's like, I used to think it was super gnarly you fasted one day a week. Man, you're crazy. You're going to be like glowing. You're John the Baptist, whatever. And I think once you do it, you start to see like, it's really not that impressive. It's not that big a deal. And like the more I fast in my life, the more I realize really anybody can do this. Except for, like, if you you have a medical condition, right? Like, I'm not trying to put some burden on somebody who's like, God, not Eve because of this. Or if you're a pregnant woman, you shouldn't fast. And, like, little kids probably shouldn't fast either, right? Because they're growing in the metabolism, stuff like that. So there's reasons you shouldn't, but the majority of us could. Uh, I have the other ones. I'll just let you guys read that on your own. Uh, I got a whole bunch of verses on fasting after this. Some of them are intense. So have fun with that. We got like eight minutes. We're going to start. Well, I'm on 16, the bottom of 16. Now I'll make one more comment fast and then we're going to try to do like four verses here. Because we, we won't be able to cover all of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to have to skip stuff. So I'm going to try to squeeze in a little bit. Last comment on fasting, top of page 16 under Roman numeral 12. Sometimes there's this notion that you need a special grace to fast. I kind of don't like that idea. Like I think you probably do need like a special grace like, or to do like an extended gnarly fast like four days. But to fast a day or two a week, I think if you have the desire to do that, that is the grace to do it. If you wish you could do it, that's all you need. That's enough. That's the Holy Spirit giving you that desire. That's the green light. Go for it. All right? You don't need to wait for Gabriel to show up to you in a night vision to start fasting. All right, let's look at these three sayings. I got Matthew 6, 19 to 24. I got it broken up the three sayings. Now, there's an interesting thread of money throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Even in the prayer, it says, forgive us our debts. That language really has financial overtones to it. It really is financial terms. We usually equate that to sins because sin is like a debt, right? Uh, But if you want to look at all the financial stuff that goes throughout this amount, it just keeps coming back. And so, one of the questions I ask is how much of this should I be taking, like really, really literal, Jesus? Like, why do you, there's so much like money language talk here giving, right? Pay the last penny. If someone wants your tunic, give them your cloak. Don't take them to court. These kinds of things. Like, that's all financial terminology. And so we're about to see a whole bunch more still on money and financial ideas. And so I'm, I don't want to uh, excuse myself and make it all spiritualized where it's not talking about actual money stuff. Right, I think we have a tendency to do that. We want to alleviate the pain and the pressure that it creates. And I say, let's just suffer a little more with Jesus and deal with it. So verse 19, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasures there, your heart will be also. Verse 22, I kind of already talked about this, and we're hitting fast. He says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. So in the ancient world with the eye, they perceived, right? Because we think of light as entering the eye, right? Light comes into our eye and that's how we see the world. In the ancient world, it was way more common to see that light came from within you and it went out to the world and that's how you saw, right? So read that verse again. The eye is the lamp of the body. So your eye is creating a path for you that you can walk on. It's your lamp that's guiding your feet, what does the eye represent? Probably your desire, right? What you long for, right? And then when we're talking about Jesus, right? And I made that point about hypocrites having, being duplicitous in their desire, right? And they were divided, but Jesus wants a single desire. Look at this next verse. He says, so if your eye is healthy, some versions probably say good, right? But in the Greek, the word is aplous. And what it really means, and they have a difficulty translating this, it means single, he says, if your eye is single, but that seems awkward because we have two eyes, right? So they're like, that's weird. Are we going to translate it like that? And so, but the idea is here, if you have single devotion, you have a single focus, you're not divided in your attention. He says, if that's how you are, right, if you're pure of heart, you have a single eye, your whole body will be full of light. The word light here isn't used everywhere, but it's in, this, uh, in the Mount of Transfiguration when it's the glory cloud of God with Jesus. And so when I hear this, word, I say, if I have a single devotion, that Matthew five forty eight, right, devote to me as he's devoted to me, I'm not divided, I don't have that duplicitous, hip, hypocritical heart where I want the world and I want Jesus, da-da-da-da, but i only go after him. He says, you will be full of my radiant glory on the inside. You will have that, and that will set the course for your life. So, but he says, but if your eye is bad. Now, remember this little saying about the eye and the lamp of the body, it's sandwiched in between two passages on money. Why is it sandwiched in between these passages on money? Because money's the primary thing that our eye gets distracted to look at. He says, that's one of the number one things you're gonna have to deal with, not getting sidetracked up and putting your eye on. He says, I want your single devotion on me, your single eye on me. He says, but if your eye becomes bad, i.e., you're divided in your attention. It's not a single eye. You're letting in other things. He says, then you'll be full of darkness. That tells me that there are believers who have not a single eye, and they're full of darkness. And they cloud their theology of money, abundance, whatever, and it's diluted by darkness, what they actually think which means I can't listen to what they say because they don't have a single eye. I only want to hear what people have a single eye have to say on financial issues. If they have a divided heart, I cannot hear from you because you're going to be divided, right? And he says, in fact, if then the light in you is darkness, right? You don't actually have light. You have darkness because your desire is for money. How great will that darkness be, right? And there's this idea that you're not going to realize you're in darkness because you think it's light, right? So there's a warning there. So then he goes on verse 24, no one can serve two masters for he will hate the one or the other. What does it look like in this context to serve a master? I'm going to go back up to 22 or 19. You serve a master by the way you store up the treasure. Serving God looks like storing up treasure in heaven. Serving money looks like storing up treasure on earth. Right? That's just right in context. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one. You cannot do both. And know what? I can count the number of people I've met who say, I love money on one hand. Zero. Zero. Nobody has ever said, you know, I do love money. Everybody always says, oh, well, we have to use money. And the fact that I've never met any believer that ever deals with a severe warning, because I don't think Jesus got it wrong, that we have this issue where we love money, tells me that we're so deceived that we can't even see it when we do love it. And I say, whoa. Jesus, am I blind to my own love of money? Because we have to use money. We have to in society, right? Like it's really hard not to. So we have to deal with it. But we get so used to it. We don't want to be the person who loves money. I'm like, no, no, I just use money. And we don't realize actually we do have some affection toward it. And Jesus said you actually can't love God if you've got that going on. You cannot. You will not be able to love him with your life with that going on. It will get in the way time and time and time again if you do. So... Da, 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 da. No one can serve two masters for either. He will, and Jesus is making it more intense. He will hate the other. Ultimately, you will end up hating God if you have a desire for that money and love there. Or he will be devoted to the one despised or you cannot serve God in money. And in the next section, I'm gonna summarize and basically a sentence 25 to 34. Jesus goes on to address ways in which our eye looks towards other things. Our eye gets distracted and off of God. It says, these are some simple practical ways in which you can start to evaluate if you've got the love of money going on. Are you concerned about the clothes you're going to wear? The food you're going to eat? Those are signs that you love money, that it's your master. These are the warning signs that he's giving us and he shows us the way out. I don't have time to go into it. I'm sorry. But summarizing, basically it leads you to think God doesn't care and he says, I care about you. If you knew how much I cared about you, you wouldn't love money as much. You wouldn't need to right? All right, Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your scriptures. I ask you would continue to illuminate it, God. In Jesus' name, amen.